Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Babette's Feast tells the story of how refugee transforms a closed religious community by sacrificing all she has to throw a lavish dinner party. Through her radical hospitality, this mysterious woman converts her guests' deeply held notions of scarcity and judgment and opens them up to give and receive abundant grace. My guests, Julia Beardsley O'Brien and Abigail Keelan, are bringing this wildly popular story to the stage. Their adaptation reimagines the story you thought you knew about Babette's singular feast. Deep, funny, dangerous, sensual, and beautiful. I had a great talk with Julia and Abigail about their adaptation of this story. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Julia Beardsley O'Brien and Abigail Keelan. Julia, Abigail, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. This is so interesting for several reasons. So I rarely have anybody with me in the studio for the podcast, except the other podcast to do with my friend Bill. He's often, he's here all the time. But so I've had two guests here in like two weeks. And you, we have one of you, Julia is remotely from New York. Abigail, you're here. And you two, it's so funny. We all know all these people. Like Julie and I went to college together. Mm-hmm. I know your brother, mm-hmm. Matt. It's just a small, small world and a small, small studio. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's kind of a big we have a screen. Lot of it's a 27 inch screen. So, Julia, I mean, even though you're digitally, you're you're well presented. I'm, I'm glad. To glad to know. <laughs> Just to keep up with the rules of audio and try to narrate all of the things that are visually going on. So, you two uh, are, have been friends a while. You met in New York in like a Bible study? We did. We did. It was a women's Bible study in the 2000s. Uh, before we had kids, we were both married at the time, and we had a group of women. Uh, I think the most remarkable part about that study is seeing all these years later how all that has happened in our lives that seemed to start through our prayer time together. Would you agree at that yeah. moment? Yeah, and we were all from different churches, mm-hmm. and but we all were pursuing the arts in New York kind of at the beginning of that and seeing how even though we parted ways, we're still all connected in various ways, whether it's just personally supporting each other or doing projects together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that's probably like how like most creative duos like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck probably met at a Bible study. At a Bible study. Yeah. (laughs) Serving the Lord. So then you two are in this Bible study and from there, this... That you got you to decide to do an adaptation of Babette's Feast, right? This is what happens in every Bible study. Well, what I, I remember is riding the F train home with Abby, and she whispers to me, I think God gave me this idea to adapt the short story Babette's Feast to a play, but why, don't why tell anyone. You, why, why did you whisper? Did you think people were going to crib it on the train? Like, <laughs> I got that idea. She was like, don't tell anyone. I was like, great. I, I think I felt... <laughs> I felt nervous by the enormity of the project and maybe whispering it would make it more, make it easier to do in some way. I don't know. But I trusted Julia a lot and these women a lot. And it was something I brought to the group and said, this is something I feel has, I feel called to do. And so, and and so it started there. Yeah. But I wasn't involved at that time. I was doing my own thing and just working in the theater, mostly producing and directing. And the, I mean, I was so green. I was so green. I had a friend who had done, created a screenplay based on a book. And so I had the idea and I called her up and I said, what do I do if I want to do this? And she said, you need to find the publisher and call and ask for subsidiary rights and ask who to contact for subsidiary rights. So I called, um, so I bought the book and found the publisher and called and reached someone right away who gave me the agent's name. I called her that day and I had the rights within 48 hours. I have since learned it never happens that way. It never happens that way. What way does it usually happen? 
uh, you call and no one calls you back and then they question your value as an artist and are you worth the material and what what else have you done that should make us consider you and if Holly or and a lot of things I've learned big studios just have right clamp down on rights right away as soon as something is is uh, is seen as marketable or interesting to the public and Is this in stages? Like, when do they call you in? It's like, okay, today we're going to question your value as an artist. (laughs) No, no, no. It all comes at once. Do you need tissues? Like, this is... um, No, it doesn't. I wish I could prepare for each of the stages. It happens happens all at once. Because I've worked... I've I've had some other projects that I'm working on. And it's just a lot more complex. But this part was really easy. And I credit um, the estate for being generous with uh with the story and with the rights and they've grant they granted us the rights to create the adaptation i was working with a writer at the time i'm still working with a writer named rose courtney who wrote the script and they granted us the rights to to create the adaptation and then and they've granted us the rights to produce it at portland stage and we're in negotiation with them really hopeful for uh for going to New York. Well, and, and so is, are they like, all right, are there, are there strings attached or they're kind of like, okay, we have to have it done this way. Or, you know, the, this the Babette can be no taller than five foot nine. I mean, are there things, I mean, how much control do they have over an adaptation like that? I mean, do you, how much creative control do you get? I think it, I don't know enough to say what it, if they're, if it's what it's like for different properties, but with this one, I feel really, I feel really protective of the source material and we're working really carefully to make sure our our goal is to honor the short story and honor authorial intent. And in fact, my favorite fun fact about Babbitt's Feast is that it was written in English originally. So the film is a translation and it was first published in the United States in 1950. I did not know that. Yeah. So the words we're using that are from the short story are the author's own. Yeah, because you wonder, I always, don't you always wonder, like, when things are translated, like, like a hymn, like a mighty fortress says, our God, did it rhyme in German? You know, because, like, are they, you know, like, how, how do they, like, how much change do you make so that it rhymes? You know, these are things. So it, it's fortunate that you have this, the, the material to adapt. You don't have to make things rhyme or things like that. Yes, thank, thankfully. No, when did, when did, the, when did this become a, a joint collaborative project? Obviously tried to bring me in at a couple of different points, I think, but (laughs) it was last year when a few different roads for the script to move forward kind of came to dead ends. And Abby, I think felt like, you know what, this is my project. Abby is the conceiver developer. She's going to be an actress in it. It was her idea. And she took it fully she took the reins back into her own hands and decided to go as far as far as she could with it, knowing that she had relationships in Portland and she was going to leverage those and then bring it to New York. And I was her connection in New York, someone that she trusted and someone that had um, some connections in the producing world. So she asked me to join her. And honestly, at that point, I just said yes. And I've just kept saying yes. But knowing that this has been a 10 year process, I was... I wasn't really sure it was going to happen. I just, if Abby S is going to say yes. So there's been several more stages of yes that I've had to embrace. I've wrapped my head around and my heart around. Um, at that point, I was like, sure, sure. And it was, I tell Abby all the time in the office that I used to work in, the general management office, people came in multiple times a week with projects and they would leave and I'd say to my boss, wow, that sounds so great. I can't wait to work on it. He's like, we'll see. We'll see. And so many just the pieces just don't fall into place. So the pieces are falling into place. And yeah, so we're <laughs> where we are now. The pieces keep falling into place. And I had to keep saying, oh, okay. Oh, this is really happening. Oh, I guess I need to go back and, and read mm-hmm. the script mm-hmm. <laughs> this, again, again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is this the biggest project that both of you have worked on as far as career wise? Like, is this like, Hey, this is, I mean, everybody that goes into entertainment, I guess, thinks in terms of breaks, right? Is this, is this like the big, big break? Have there been other, I mean, I, I, I guess if we're going to, 
there's that adage that it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. I don't really believe in the concept of break. I think break is what is perceived by the audience. But this is, if we were to, this would be the longest, slowest, most painful break. (laughs) 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 If we were going to say it that way. I think something that we feel is is the privilege of the calling and the prayer to be worthy of the calling because the story is a work of genius and the power of the theater we believe in and we understand and we're really schooled in that medium of storytelling and we believe bringing these two things together has the power for tremendous impact and significance so there's a balance of watching the pieces come together and praying through that and then also the uh, and then also deciding and discernment and deciding what to do next and it's the combination it's a lot like parenting now that I think about it yeah it is a lot like parenting I think um, part of what's really frustrating about working in the theater is that so often you don't get to choose what you work on and it it can feel very passive Mm -hmm. I mean you can always say yes or no but um I, I agree with you, Abby, that it feels like the part that feels fortuitous or feels like a break is that it's this project that we believe in so completely that we feel excited about working on. There's so many, if we look, if you look at backstage or you look at what, what's coming up to work on, whether you're an actor or, or an artist or a producer, it's like, ah, do I really want to, do I really want to devote all my time and energy to I don't know, uh, SpongeBob the musical, which I, I wish them well. And I hope it, <laughs> I hope all, everything does great, but it, I, that isn't something that would, you know, excite me in these same ways. And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. and then to work with you, Abby, mm-hmm. and then to have, to have a unified purpose and even our director someone that I remember someone, um, brought her to a theater that I was uh, managing 12 years ago. And said, I think you should know this woman. I think you should know Karin Coonrod. And I think you might work with her someday. And um, so it just feels like that's that's the part that feels like a break yeah. for me. And, and yeah. the people came alongside us. Um, there were lots of times we thought the project was dead. And then, and then something would spark. Um, a gentleman named Mark Rogers came, sent an email through. We were working with Mako Fujimura, who supported us early on. Great guy. Yeah. I, I, and I interviewed him once. He's, he's, a, he's a lovely person. I agree. And he granted the project a developmental a workshop production at the IM space when they had one in New York. So we could see it on its feed and see how it played with audiences. And he introduced... He spoke of the project and, you know, he travels all over the world and speaks all the time. And someone heard him talk about the project and became interested in it and contacted us in trying to help us raise money. So it's the sorts of things that we have no control over. Yes, those things feel like a break. And then the parts of it that we're responsible for, we're really excited about. And we're also proceeding with healthy fear and trembling to to midwife with what we're trying to create. Oh, it's keeping you from working on SpongeBob the musical too, <laughs> yeah. which is it's funny. Howard Stern actually made this joke about Fox News the musical. He's like, wouldn't it be great with all these harassments? Like, and then we'll have we'll have a, a, a Rupert Murdoch in the show and go, we need a host, a, a host conservative and slimy, and then you'll have so. Well, let me introduce you to Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> and so, so you may and actually some people want to make it. So who knows? Oh it, yeah, Fox it would sell News, tickets. This, I would go see it. Yeah, I would see that. Yeah, so there it is, a million dollar idea. I think, but I think that. That's another part of it that feels um, that feels amazing. And looking back, I, and we keep saying we're going to look back on this moment and we're going to see it. But I think right now we can look back and we can say, oh, it, this story makes so much sense right now. Mm-hmm, it's a it's mm-hmm. about a woman who's a refugee who, yeah, it, it it's just the it feels like it is the moment for this to come into the world as opposed to four or six years ago. So that feels really really fortuitous as well. Do you think there is there any is there a perception that the theater is like an elitist medium? Oh, I think so. Do you struggle with that? I mean, do you like, is that a thing that's like, you know, 
I mean, and so much of that, I mean, so for I, whatever elite means, but I mean, we have a reaction and, and this is sort of one of those things that like, you know, a real Americans have this kind of entertainment, right. And the elite, you know what I mean? Like that, is that, do you, is that a hard thing working in theater? I'm not saying it's true. I just think it's a, it's, it is a stereotype, right? Is that fair to say? Well, we are in a culture that, that values the theater. I think we're a culture that wants that experience once or twice a year or once or twice a lifetime, if in the case of a Broadway ticket. Like, I'm going to New York and I'm going to bring my family to see a Broadway show and it's going to cost me $1,500 and that's going to be our experience. But people pay for that same sort of experience. I think it's a very similar experience to watching a, a sports team. It's the same kind of thrill, live connection to to something greater than ourselves. We don't know how it's going to end, or we do know how it's going, or we do know how it's going to end, and we want to watch the experience of it happening. Uh, what do you think, Julia? I'm- yeah, I absolutely do. I, I think theater prices are really high, and I think ticket prices are high and I think that it's, it's been a, a medium that's been used that, that exists in, in privileged places for the most part, but it didn't, it didn't always, it didn't start that way. And it really is a, it is an incredibly democratizing experience mm. um, to be true. in the room. You're in the room with the actors. The, it can be Bette, Mid- Bette Midler or, you know, it can be, someone who just graduated from college, it can, you know, it's, it's everybody. And even in the ensemble, if you're in the ensemble, as opposed to working on a movie where you're going to be separated from the stars, like everybody's in it together. And, uh, and our director is one of her values. The ways that that she works is taking the theater into the streets, creating this very community, community, communal, um, environment. And, uh, I, I would say that it, it's something that I, I haven't honestly struggled with it just cause I feel like I'm struggling enough in New York, but like just, to, just to find, find theater and to be a part of it. But, um, but for sure. And I think that's why Hamilton, um, feels like such a, such an extraordinary thing because the ticket prices are, are really high, but then they have tickets available at a lower cost and they're trying to get students in and they're trying to get people from different communities in and they're making an effort. Um, and they're making an effort with the people that they put on stage to, to not all look predictably the same. Um, yeah. And, and certain, yeah. stereotypes like that are weird, right? Because, because, you know, my wife and I have like opera passes. We go to the opera a few times a year. And when I go to the opera, it, it, the people that it does not seem like a, an elite crowd when you go, I mean, like with Philadelphia opera, I mean, it's, it, there's people, you know, of all sorts of, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a gathering of the elite, which, it, which, mm. so it's just strange how these things, these stereotypes are, are kind of, we know that there, there's something to them or something, but, and yet also our experience, uh, experience can be so dissonant with it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you say this is for this time, the refugee element to it. Also, you think of like, there was somebody, I was listening to a podcast called Imaginary Worlds, which is excellent. It's all about the imaginary worlds we construct and and what they tell us about our reality. And, you know, one of the, they were talking about post-apocalyptic stuff. And they said, in times of scarcity, the fantasy worlds are places of abundance. And in times of relative abund- abundance, the apo- walking dead, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica, these things were the, their scarcity for. Re- so, like, is there, I mean, do you think we're in a time of abundance or scarcity? And how would that relate to the story about this refugee with these dour, pietist, you know, Lutherans? And, and where, you know, where is Babette's views on the scarcity abundance continuum? It's a great question, it Scott. Is. You know what this makes me think of? Um, Robert Brustein wrote an article in the that was published in the New York Times in 1988 that a colleague introduced me to that I give to my students because he talks about um, the fashion of what he called um, the jollying up of Shakespeare. We're going to do much ado about nothing as if it's set during the Revolutionary War or in and drawing this I is talking about the theater as simile when the opportunity for theater as metaphor is is present in the art form and so much more powerful and i think of the actor the the best acting is metaphor not simile so it's 
it's fantasy, but it's also very truthful because it's only if it's only fantasy, we don't buy it. But if it's if 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 we recognize something about it as human, the audience will lean in. When I was in acting school, I wasn't yet a Christian, and this actor named Michael Moriarty, who at the time was on Law and Order, and I actually some of the best acting I've seen on television is his work on Law and Order. This is where I wish you had sound effects like. <laughs> <laughs> to speak to us and he said he said acting is the word made flesh and i thought that's absolutely true and that's brilliant and then later on when i became a christian and read the gospel of john and talked about of course jesus as the word made flesh i think it and recognized the real source of that quote i thought oh my goodness there's such a beautiful symbolism in the actor stepping in to the work of christ I want to be clear and say that no human act can truly capture the incarnation that is other. <laughs> but the theater, in my opinion, I mean, the come on, theater... you see the passion of the Christ, James, <laughs> the same kind. but the theater comes closest, and I will die on that mountain. I think the. I like you. Okay. I mean, right, yeah. Well, there is something to right to the theater where no one will ever see the performance you saw. Right? That's right. You know, like no matter what the play is, no matter what the show is, like nobody. Or when you see a film, I mean, you maybe see it in different contexts with different, you know, you know, the same people never watch it together, but everybody sees the same thing. And that's right. And in the, in the live performance event, you are part of the performance you saw. You are part of the, the experience where you are in your life contributes to the mysterious energy of the event. And that is what draws people do, to it at its best. So summarize for me, like if you were going to say like, here, here's the pitch for like, you're going to summarize the story. I mean, what would be like, if you had the, like the, you know, the quick summary, the elevator speech, the elevator speech that you're summarizing the story of Babette's feast and, you know, trying to make a pitch for why to see this show, this, and you can do spoilers, I guess, because, you know, we want to talk a little about the content of the story, the play. So go, go ahead, do it. Tag team. You can do it together. I've been talking it's to you, Abby. No, it's, okay. but it's you. It's yours. If this is yours. Babbitt's Feast is the story of a refugee who enters a closed religious community and sacrifices all she has to throw a lavish dinner party, opening up this austere sect to give and receive a kind of grace they've never understood, even though they've devoted their life to the God they, uh, as they understand him. In, I was looking at the story again recently and at our script again. In the, the way it's scripted, or the way it's written in the text, is they had been given, through the feast, they had been given an hour of the millennium. And it, I don't know how better to say it than that. They see eternity through the sacrifice of mm. the other, the mm. person they were most frightened of. And why is Babette this refugee that they take in? She's French, right? She's French. And they're, Dan they're Danish? They're Danish. They're, they're Norwegian. Norwegian. They're Norwegian. Okay. Oh, why did I think Denmark? I don't know why I thought that. Because the film, the film was Danish. See, isn't that, a, is this a problem when you're doing an adaptation of a story <laughs> and there's been a movie made? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've it never is. done it before, but I imagine it. I, I try it out for and a the musical. author's Danish too. The author's Danish. Okay. So we, I tried out yeah. for a musical in high school. It was I, one time. <laughs> what was, I was it? Like, it was Hello, Dolly. You know? And I was like, <laughs> I, I did a little acting. I was, I was like, well, all right. What I'll do is I'll go get the VHS and date myself. I was like, I'll just be like Waller Matthau. And I tried, I was like, uh, it takes a woman all pilot and pink. And I was like, and they gave me the part. And like the, the younger actor, when he's younger, I was like, he just did Walter Matthau's version. I was like, well, what? That's what you do, right? Like, you know, it's what it is, it's what it is right? Like, so but is that I mean, a challenge? Like, okay, how do we, you know, because people that, especially my guess is that many of the people that will come to see uh, this the play will at least I, a good portion would be lovers of the story. That's right. right? Like, That's not, right. Not, We're not, hoping. Yeah. 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 Well, it, I would say like, what, it, what is, we have to go back to the source material, back to the text. You could say, you could say the same thing about Christianity. What is Christianity? And people have really clear ideas about what it is and what it isn't, but you can go back to the source material, the word of God and new things become clear. New things are highlighted in light of the zeitgeist, new things um, in, in light of personal experience, new, the, the Holy Spirit is present and, and makes new things clear to you. It, there's similarities. 
I think that the two questions we get most often when people hear that we're doing this, because most people are only familiar with the film, is, uh, is it going to be as long as the film? <laughs> as, as slow as the film? And then, um, how no, are you going to do... Are you like, longer and slower, <laughs> and there'll be no air conditioning, and we're running Quiet. it in the summer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're locking they, the doors. They, they try. They go real slow. They're like, uh, "Is it gonna be?" And then, uh, how are you gonna do the food? Yeah, what are you gonna do about food? Yeah. So the first to to answer the first question, it's it's completely different than the film, as you would imagine, because the f- film is a visual medium, and theater is really text based. I would say, um, and then experiential, and so the adaptation I think moves really quickly and follows the short story in a way that the film didn't because it was, it was a visual story. So beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, and ours is going to be visually captivating as well, but in a completely different way, of course. And then realism, it's not real. No. Yeah. It's not realism. Yay. Uh, but Abby, Mm -hmm. you talk about what Karen said about the food. The, if, because (laughs) sorry, (laughs) you just said it last night. I did say it last night. If people walk away from our play thinking Babette's feast is about the food she prepared, we've failed. Hmm. The it's bigger than the feast. It's the ex, it's the hour of the millennium. It's the experience of grace beyond what we can ask or imagine. It's the presence yeah. of the Lord. And, and the, the I feel like the film in the film because it was so visually arresting and it's so stark. And then when that food comes out, it's incredibly lush and abundant. Um, I, when I think about the film, I feel like that it really is the peak and mm-hmm. almost, and it feels like the end, you kind of can't remember what happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like our play, that's definitely the event, but then what follows, I feel like opens it up and it makes, it expands what yes. happens at the feast. And it, I think at the end of our play, especially it is ele- an elevating experience. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I feel it. Mm-hmm. I read so much when I go, when I look at articles about Babette's feast, there's so, so much about, about the food and about abundance and foodies love it. There's a lot of recreations of the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's really fun, but this I is don't, like a Star Trek convention kind of thing. Like, okay, wow. I didn't know that there was this kind of cult following oh, yes. for that, oh, yes. to that level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, what was the movie with, um, Ju- where she, she cooked through Julia Child's cookbook, Julie and Julia, Julie and Julia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Pe- people do that. They try to find the recipes and recreate the feast and, um, but yeah, but it, but we're hoping to get beyond Beyond that, yeah, yeah. So Babette is a refugee who suffered. She lost. She lost her husband and son. Right. They were shot in front of her. And that was in, set in it, one of the communist uprisings in Paris after the French Revolution. Right. Right. And her and she's no. She is kind of like. I mean, the bush, the bourgeois, and the, and the sort of. <laughs> The establishment people, people with money, are actually the people that enable her to do her craft, right? Yes. Like you can't, you know. That's right. She and she, she owns them. She says they belonged to me. They were mine because they were brought up to understand the level of my artistry. And that's another thing that Julia and I together love about this story is its is its duality, the light and the darkness at the same time. Babette is an agent of grace. And she also, the text is, I loaded the gun for my menfolk. She was actively part of that resistance. So the the tension, it's the same tension I mentioned before that the theater embodies where you're doing the same thing again as if it's the first time. or you're, And the tension of being, as human beings, being capable of, we are created in the image of God and we are capable of such darkness. Yeah. And the theater holds light and darkness really well. Yeah, we we both get Richard Rohr's daily meditations and one you do. Do you guys know who Pete Holmes is, the comedian Pete Holmes? No. He did the show Crashing on HBO. Okay. He's funny, but he is a friend of Rob Bell's and stuff, and he is like a Richard Rohr fan. He does this great he's on this podcast with Rob Bell. He does this great Richard Rohr. It's like 
and a lot of men are. Oh no, I've never heard his voice. Their time of solitude in their car in the commute. It's like you're like that's Richard Rohr, and then yeah. when I heard his voice, I was like, oh my gosh, that is Richard Rohr. It's like, wow. <laughs> but but his, yeah, Julia, his idea, or you were saying his idea is so great. Yeah, we, one of them was about the the ark, as in Noah's ark, mm-hmm. and how it held all of these all of these animals together the the predator and the prey and how it's this metaphor for for grace and for life and i think that that's helped us even as we are, are approaching all of this the personalities the conflicts that come up um and it's asking us to to hold it all together in in our hearts with compassion and love and forgiveness and to see babette we had just read that and then we we read through the new version of the script together and when mm-hmm. it came to that part I was like she's doing it mm-hmm. she's loading the gun mm-hmm. for to kill to sh- shoot at these people and she is loving them and feeding them and i do feel like that is a, such a moment that we're in right now um in our country because as we're finding ourselves at a table, a lot of us with family members who have such different political views than we do. And I, I cannot wrap my head around it. Um, people that I grew up with, people that, that I love and admire and, um, there's such tension and I still love and admire them. So it, it gave me, um, it gave me an example of somebody who, even if it's just in a story of someone who was doing mm-hmm. this and I, and I could understand Babette's mentality. The story helped, helped me to see that and to, to not have to put a box or a wall yeah, up between right. the uh, people on the other side of the table. And this whole project, because of this story, it's been such a challenge to Abby and to me, um, because there's no room for an uncha- for uncharitable words or uncharitable um, attitudes, and so as soon as they come up, whether it's uh you know just even like question like not giving somebody the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. or questioning a motive, um, the story the the story checks us because there's no way to proceed with this story and telling the story if we have those things. In- manifesting in us. And of course they do, of course they come up, but it becomes this mirror that I feel like, I feel like it, it immediately flashes up for me where I'm like, ah, yep. well, that's not going to stand. That, that can't, that can't be in the room if we're going to be telling the story. Mm. And the, the, the challenge of duality is also an invitation in, I think my, my biggest challenges. We say duality. Do you mean consciously over against dualism, I don't mean dualism. But, right, but like, I mean, yeah, because yeah, the, the I, two I things, be clear. Seem, yeah, it seem to me very different. They are, v- yes, yeah. very different. The, um, but I mean holding, I mean holding the light and the darkness together. And my own, my biggest challenges in the for in the church, and my biggest challenges outside the church, are when I'm being pushed into a box that has to look a particular way, and. When we're forced to hold the light and the darkness together, we can watch the Holy Spirit regenerate our hearts in the midst of that. And there's no room for any belief that that comes from me looking or doing the right thing. And I, that is the real miracle is, is a loving heart that moves out of, um, of light and darkness together. Like, and that's what Babette does. Take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron 
through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. There's an essay written by Thomas Curry. Do you know this essay? It's called Babette's Feast and the Goodness of God. I I may I not. Let I me look it up my... right now. Yeah, it's uh, I don't know. It's in some journal that it was, uh, I forget what journal it appeared in, but uh, it was like a it's a it's a scholarly paper, and he's actually working off of a philosopher, Marilyn McCord, and it was a blessed memory. I actually met a lovely person, and he says this that the love meals that Babette made in Paris have taken on a new meaning here in the agape feast of the religious community. As they celebrate their founder, she grieves through and memorializes the ones she loved. There is a sense made more explicit in the book that Babette is also putting to rest the memories of those bourgeois, like Galafette, who could appreciate her artistry. Though she fought against them, still they were the people who gave her an identity. This detail also explains, in part, Babette's 14-year suspension of grieving. Her losses conflict with each other. Her need to mourn her family conflicts with the desire to mourn the French aristocracy who were the sine qua non of her vocation. And then he quotes Mm. that you belong to me. Mm. And he actually thinks that, that too much, too much interpretation is Christological and it loses her own suffering. Like Mm -hmm. if the the suffering mm -hmm. becomes too vicarious and and he, and he thinks like viewing this meal too Eucharistically actually can make it seem like, she, she needs as much redeeming as she's offering that's redemption right. to the community, right? That's exactly right. And I, that's been our, I am so on my knees grateful for our donors and investors that are making this possible. And part of the challenge in our fundraising has been donors and investors that want a purely Christological point of view. And we, we, I don't believe we can do honor to the story and give them that. So the people who are supporting us are, are uh, I can't think of the right word because I'm feeling foolish because all I'm saying is light and darkness, light and darkness, but they are able to hold the light and darkness together and are not, um, they're, cons- they're interested in redeeming culture, not slamming down a new culture on top. Um, not what's the, I heard someone quoted once saying, why why would anyone become a christian if you're just exchanging one prison for another and i think the same is in the culture if you just have a new set of not so good movies books films and things to absorb instead of redeeming what is there yeah and and but that's traumatized i mean it's interesting so much of what we yeah. know in, in therapeutic and psychological developments right is the significance of trauma and how it really i mean if if part of what being a human is is being storied right so you have Mm -hmm. a back story you look back and look forward and hope and and then that orients orients your present but in traumatic memories like you're stuck the past is present and there's no hope in future and so like Mm-hmm. You ha- like I think to get uns- I mean the the healing of that is 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 regaining your own humanity through a storied existence again. You're not a prisoner to the past. The kind of you know and so and, and this author actually is yeah. arguing that like like too much Christ figuring of Babette really. He talks about the one scene where she's looking down. I think in the film at the at the community bickering mm-hmm. and it's like it, it, there's this sort of illusion of christ like oh i weep for you jerusalem kind of thing and he's like <laughs> to, to read that as sort of like actually to diminish the own her own trauma that she's mm-hmm. working through it's fantastic the, that's fantastic the oh i i'm sorry i had a thought and it just went right out of my head along those lines It'll i was thinking back. about um as you were reading as you were reading um the thoughts about her at the end um I, I just feel so many parallels with my own experience too. When you were asking about um, where on the abundant scarcity spectrum does this story lie? And um, Babette holds scarcity and abundance in, mm-hmm. in herself. And I think 
back to our, our game of Thrones conversation as well. <laughs> it's this, it's, it's, it's these, there are things about our culture that I can't stand and the ways that I participate in our culture. I mean, even, even theater, is it, is it elite? Yeah, it is. And yet it's also incredibly humble and has a potential to be, to put us all in the, in the same place at the same time. And, um, and in that way that she's able to, to mourn both sides and in the, in the same way, I don't feel like I've experienced a ton of, of trauma, capital T trauma, but those, those stories are complicated stories. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's it, the, the, the situations that, um, that, and the people often that hurt us are, are usually the people that we, that are closest to us and that love us and that's may still love us. And it's that process of, of healing and recognizing, well, the like recognizing yourself and the other, not mm-hmm. completely pushing the other away, not complete, not putting yourself in the in the position of victim. Um, which I, I, you know, I'm really, I'm really speaking about things I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a therapist, but that is why I'm drawn to story, and that's why I'm drawn, especially to this story. And I keep feeling like I, it's, it's healing for me to enter into it and to see this one person, I mean, I can't imagine. And there's people, there's people, my neighbors in the, in New York who have had to go through similar situations and left, they've left their families. They've left their country. Um, and I bet you there's things about living here that they really like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. then, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and, and yet they mourn and they, they grieve and they're lonely and they, they miss certain things that also maybe they may even miss things that are, that we would would see as, 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 um, as difficulties. Um, so yeah, I, I love that. And I totally agree with you. I think that, that putting her as a Christ figure, it, 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 uh, it tries to put her in a box that mm-hmm. I don't think the mm-hmm. author intended to put her in. Um, I think an artist, I think the artist needs to really be acquainted with a sense of longing and longing can only come from unfulfilled desire. And Babette is a great artist. Are you back? Oh, good. Oh, nice. Okay. So I'm going to say what I said again. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That the artist, Babette calls herself a great artist. And I believe this to be true, that the artist's greatest work comes out of a sense of longing. And longing can only, longing comes from unfulfilled desire. And it's by being honest with our longings that we can make art that embraces God, but also acknowledges the fall. I remember, I was thinking that along these lines, my brother-in-law is a counselor, and he said something once that stuck with me, which is, what God does with the wreckage that is your life is the glory of God. And this, what God, and thinking about Babette too, what does, um, how the general appears at the table, someone who is able to understand her artistry, out of nowhere appears. It's such an act of mercy to her and an act of mm. grace to her. So if she, if she's only the, the giver of grace, we lose that moment where she's able to receive someone who understands me has appeared at the table. Yeah, amidst all these sort of kind of ascetic Mm-hmm. Lutheran. So I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's funny because like Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran pastor, and people said when Nietzsche would like read scripture, people would cry in in the church, and like wow, and wow. then like his dad died, blow a figure, and you know his. I mean, there's lots written about his relationship with his mother and his sisters, and you know, kind of the uptight Lutheran. But and I'm thinking these are the, these are like the people that, that, that yeah. made Nietzsche right. God yeah. is dead. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you know, these, these dour <laughs> Lutheran. Like yes. you know, this is a yeah. You know, trying so hard. I, I'm not, they say to each other, we're not going to taste this meal because we don't want to dishonor God. They don't use those words, but I will not participate because of my, my firm convictions. And she gives anyway. That's how I feel when I go to McDonald's and it's the fries. <laughs> you know, they took the fries and vegetable oil, not in real fat anymore. Cause get, and you're like, I don't want to taste these because it dishonors God that they 
bake them in that oil that's terrible just oh. to stop the yeah. fries I, should be made in real fat not i had some one. shake shack fries recently those are honoring to god listen to malcolm gladwell's thing about french fries and how it's amazing but yeah you know, it's interesting this this guy curry who wrote this piece and he also talks about marilyn mccord adams book uh, i think it's horrendous evils and the goodness of god and she's talking she's trying to talk about horror not just suffering but real horror that mm. that just is so you know it's of, of the michael vick dogs you know the pitbulls were abused only two were put down and not because they were fierce it was they were so traumatized they pancaked they couldn't interact with dogs humans they just like couldn't handle mm. it and and so and they just and, and she's talking about horrors that suffering that's not just bad but it it, it crushes your sense of personhood and she, mm. and he's working for he says to the participant horrendous evils are not prima facie meaningful but in the light of the incarnation they are not meaningless mm-hmm. because such experiences are partially constitutive of the most meaningful relationship of all even if participants are unable at first to appreciate to appropriate this dimension of meaning and then he says this is summarized in one of adam's strongest statements in the book I do not say that participation in horrors thereby loses its horrendous aspect. On the contrary, they remain by definition prima facie ruinous to the participant's life. Nevertheless, I do claim that because our eventual post-mortem beatific intimacy with God is an incommensurable good for human persons, divine identification with human participation in horrors confers a positive aspect on such experiences by integrating them into the participant's relationship with God. Retrospectively, I believe, from the vantage point of heavenly beatitude, human victims of horrors will recognize those experiences as points of identification with the crucified God and not wish them away from their life histories. And that's a, that is a strong yeah. statement. I mean, it, it, I mean, but it, yeah, it, it, that's almost like the all or nothingness of the incarnation, right? Like, yeah. Well, back to the midlife book that you mentioned. Yeah, that's before. such a great book. It's it, sitting on the desk. It's here. It is. I'm looking at it, and the if if our struggles are about meaninglessness, the the incarnation gives everything meaning, and how. When even even the struggles that Julia and I run into, it seems daily in trying to bring this project to life, we can even see looking back in the wake how things work, how it's working together for good, how it's working together for good. And it, it drives us to our knees. Not everyone gets not everything in our lives gets that view so quickly. It's mercy that we're able to see quickly. Yeah. But yeah. we will be what we will see at Christ's return, I can't imagine the the glory of seeing how it works, how it wasn't in vain. Mm-hmm. Well, I think with that quote that you read, Scott, I mean, it's, I think that perspective can only come through an experience, uh, a loving experience with God. And I think that, that that's where religion kind of stops mm. and it's, in its ability, in its um, effectiveness, or in its ability to give us comfort, right, is when when we come up against the, the great problems of pain and evil in the world, and um, there's only there's only so much circling around those topics in an intellectual way that, and I and I don't know that 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 kind of conversation can bring comfort or can bring um, meaning to people. It, it it hasn't been my experience. But I feel like, but but the life experience can confirm the truth of it. Yeah, but you can't. Yeah, it can, it's a truth that can only be experienced and not explained. Yeah, I agree, and I feel like it's it, for me. It comes in in relationship form, in a mm-hmm. in a, in an ongoing, like a living dialogue. Um, and and I feel like that's another aspect of the story that comes forward with these people who have created a beautiful little society. Um, that maybe has reached its limits in terms of its its effectiveness after their leader died mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. there's there's patterns of of um, bitterness and unforgiveness that have grown up in grudges um, and it's not another church service it's not another tradition that leads them out into something new that leads them to transformation or that brings meaning to this this dark little world it's an experience and it's and it's a person. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, and that's a also fellow, part of a fellow what, sufferer, mm-hmm. a fellow sufferer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And someone whose story, although they never, 
they, they don't ever really, they can't really engage and, and embrace her story. They never really, um, they never really understand who she is, but even in that there's grace, you know, it's like, she they, it's not all anyway. spelled out. Yeah. And, um, mm. and I feel like in the ways that, that we've like digitized our lives mm. in so many ways, um, and the ways that we've, we've boxed people in, I feel like that's another reason that Abby and I are both so passionate about the theater is that you have to be present in this moment if you're, if you're going to partake. And it is, it is a, um, a physical experience that you're having that, that asks you questions in the moment. And if something goes wrong, if the, if the power goes out, if the lights go out, it happens for all of us. You can't, I mean, I, I've been in a show, I, I was in a Broadway show where someone and the audience had a heart attack and they stopped, they had to stop the show and the, and a doctor came out and they took the guy out and, and it was amazing. You know, mm-hmm. the actors stopped mm-hmm. and then the actors had to start again. And we were all wondering what had happened to this man. And then we had to read it about it later online, but, but that's all part of it is, um, mm-hmm. and I, and then to take it back to, to my original point where I feel like as people of faith, Abby and I, it, it comes back, it comes back to something that's beyond a religious tradition for us. Um, There's a- and that, yeah. And that's where art and then, and that's what art can do as well. And that's what mm-hmm. story can do. And it goes back to the, the Christian Christianity is built on, on real people and, and on stories. Mm-hmm. So yeah. mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah. And the stories that are, it's interesting. Like, I think, I mean, I, I'm not a Quranic scholar. I think if you read the, what strikes me as different about reading the Bible and the Quran is that there are so many stories in the Bible where you're like, well, why is that there? But <laughs> yeah. you, know, like, you don't, it, the stories in the Quran are a little more principalized, right? You kind of know why they're there. And, and that's not to diminish their value in that tradition. It's just saying that like, there are story. Part of it is because it's a lived history, and histories does not histories don't always make sense, you know. It's mm-hmm. how, you know it, it, mm-hmm. But that's part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it's. I I often think it's like when people want to be an interfaith dialogue and talk about well, let's compare the Bible and the Quran. I'm like, no, the proper comparison is Christ and the Quran, because they're mm-hmm. both the eternal Word of God, like mm-hmm. in the various wow. traditions. So it's, it's different. What's eternally with God, it, it, you know, in the time before time, is not a book but a person. There you go. Yep, that's it. There's a Sufi poem that I want to quote that is uh, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing. There is a field. I will meet you there. Hmm. And that field is where our play lives, and we want to create our goal, and it's a. And it's a mighty goal, and the Lord give us strength. Our goal is to create an experience of grace for, and in everything we do through an environment of grace that Julia and I are trying to build our work out of. But that everyone who walks through those doors experiences grace in a way that ideas they may or may not receive in church will inform because we're not just intellectual people and so much of yeah we're mostly not i mean i like i I think i think that like what did jeff goldblum's character say in the big chill you can get a human being can get through a day without food or sex but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization because like right the mind just kind of finds just chases behind the will saying okay we want that all right they can justify that let's get it the heart wants what it wants i mean that's who we are we're creatures yeah and and it 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 slays me that, or actually, I don't know if I'm using that correctly, but it affects me that Babette never asks to be understood. She never asks to tell her story. She never asks to, to, to be heard. She is, and then she gives. And I think that's profound in, especially in our culture now, like the table that you talked about with our families, Julia, everyone wants to be heard and understood. And that's good. We should be heard and understood. But I think it's telling that Babette it, never asks for that. Or do people just want to express? I don't even know that yeah. they want to be understood. I mean, it, it, it's just, you know, it, it is interesting. Like everything is politicized right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's not like a square inch, it feels like, of a reality in this country that's not mm-hmm. somehow politicized. Mm-hmm. I was in labor with my second my younger son and i was thinking every choice i make right now is political and i don't have the space or physicality to 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 make a decision right now but whatever i do whether i get pain meds or not or it's political yeah when so when are we when are we launching this when's our when's our opening day when's our uh, we open at portland stage on january our first performance is january 23rd 
our first preview. Portland. Portland, Maine. Maine. Okay, I was just, I was I was wondering. There's a couple Portlands. One's on the other side. The of the, the actual Portland. The actual the real Portland. <laughs> the original, first, Portland, original Maine. Portland. The original. The original. Portland. Uh, Portland stage. It'll be balmy in Portland, Maine, and (laughs) balmy. It'll it'll be Norwegian. It will be. It will be. Yeah, it'll be like Scandinavian, the the tip of Norway. And um, we're really so excited to be working with the estate for a broader impact beyond that production. So hopefully that we'd go from Portland to straight to New York. Yeah, that's our that's our hope. That's That's what we're working towards. Yeah, Clements Theater. On 46th Street, right in the theater district. Oh, wow. Right off of Restaurant Row. This is very exciting. So I want to come to one of these performances. Oh, my goodness. You're so For welcome. Sure. You will. You're there. I, this is so exciting. Oh, yeah, you, you. you and bring, bring the wife. Yeah. I mean, and, the, yeah. do I want to wait till it comes to New York, though? Do I, want to, like, do I want to go up to Maine? Do I want to say I saw it before it hit New York? I think you want to do both. I want to do both. I think you want to do both. We'll, we'll make it happen. I like that. So what, what today, before we, you know, wrap up, I just want to know, like, as you all look at theater today, mm-hmm. right, what do you look at and say, yeah, this is exciting. This is great. This is, this is really what we should be. And what stuff that you're looking at that's like, that's out before it's in. This is like, ugh, I can't, I can't believe this is in the theater. Like this is, mm. I mean, what are the things that inspire and excite you that are going on? What things are just kind of like, oh man, this is like, I wish you know, the theater culture was not going in this direction. SpongeBob. (laughs) SpongeBob. Julia and I both saw Indecent on Broadway. That was a beautiful production. Um, I think... uh, I don't know Indecent. I mean, I know what Indecency is, but I don't know Indecent. (laughs) It's a play by Paula Vogel that was developed over, I think, a period of 10 years. And the director, Rebecca Teichman, I think I'm saying her last name correctly, won the Tony for Best Director, which was a, a big deal for a female director to win the Tony. Um, and it's a story about a play that, uh, oh my goodness, it's a, sto- um, a story about a play called God of Vengeance that played in downtown New York, but because of a lesbian love scene, wa- uh, it was a huge success and commercially and they moved it to Broadway, but because of a lesbian love scene, it uh, was they were all arrested for indecency. And the and one of the and then they tried to make the play. And this was even after they tried to make the play um, more suitable for an uptown crowd. They were still arrested for indecency. And one of the characters in the play is upset that they watered down the script, and he took a production over to Europe and ended up dying in the Holocaust. This is the time. Of, oh wow! So, um, by for his his principles for art, and I'm having I'm struggling trying to talk about what it's about because it's about so many things, and the production was so layered and very simple. Um, one, I'll give you an example of one moment. They're all wearing. At one point, the ensemble, there's a lot of dance and movement in the production, so there's a lot of moving in different patterns. And at one point, the ensemble gets coats on, and they are suddenly in a line, and you understand that they're in a concentration camp. And they move forward, and they lift up their arms, and ash Mm. falls out of their coat. And the audience, you could hear the audience gasp. So I... I would say productions like that where we're challenged on multiple layers where everything's not laid out. We see images and we understand things and the and the storytelling is multi-layered because the theater is multi-layered. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. it's that kind of and then the yeah. thing that the stuff that I find less interesting is it, where I'm sitting in the theater and I think, well, why didn't someone just make this into a movie? <laughs> it would Sp- be cheaper and Spider-Man easier. Spider-Man the musical. <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, or I, I don't know. I never saw that. And I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to discourage anyone trying to make theater because I certainly have an idea now how hard it is. It's so hard. And there, you have to have such love in order to get anything to production. But, um, and what character are you going to play in the, in the play? I'm playing Martine, the older of the two sisters. She's the one that, had the lover that the general the general who leaves her yeah and and it's interesting because the feast is also a, a sense of healing for him and, and yes yeah yes yeah. um and and that's her love story is this 
this meeting and a separation of a, of a number of years and then a meeting again at the feast. That's the love story of her life. Well, this has been great, and I can't wait to see the play. And also, you guys, before you go, you're still fundraising for this project, right? We are. So if we somebody are. wants to give money, what do they do? They Just send it to me, right? And I'll make sure you get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, reach out to Scott, and then Scott, you put us in touch, and we'll put them in touch with our fundraising office. No, yeah, or, or That's how, a good or, idea, yeah. And actually, I'll put it in the show notes, too. Like, there's, oh, you know, We'll put it in the show notes. Thank so just you. go to the show notes on your phone or on the website or whatever, and I'll put the info there. That's great. Thank That's you, great. Scott. Oh my goodness, Scott! You're such a pleasure to talk to. Well, so maybe, and maybe we'll do this again, like after opening night or something. Oh, know, I would love it. I would love it. It'd be wonderful to have you see the play and then talk again. Yeah, I would love that. I, I, I would. Yeah, I'd love it. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you so much. For Thank being you, here. everyone. Listen to Scott's podcast. He's, <laughs> he's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard. Please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Julia and Abigail for coming on the podcast. Look for their adaptation of Babbitt's Feast to hit the stage in the coming year. And thanks again to you for listening to the podcast. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.